like to apologize for being a very bad meditator. A lazy one, too. We keep telling you all the time, be in the present moment, the present moment, the present moment. What do I do? I spend my time in the past. Uh, If you recall, I mentioned when the retreat began that walking into uh, Providence Zen Center, this monastery, uh, aroused many past memories, very powerful ones. Most of them very pleasant, beyond pleasant, very good ones, uh, having to do with here in Korea. Um, So what I've decided to do tonight is to continue where Corrado left off in a way about attachment. But I'm going to let Sansanim, you know the face of the Zen master that you see around here? His name is Sansanim. He's a Korean Zen master. Uh, And I was a student of his for five years, five very intensive years, here and Korea and Japan. Anyway, I'm going to let Sansanim give the Dharma talk. And I'm going to work out my attachment to the past on you. (laughs) I hope that some of it uh, has some relevance for the present. You know, the past is okay. The future is okay, too. What we mean is, when you're dipping into the past, you know that you're doing it. You're firmly planted in the present knowing that you're dipping into something that's over. Or if you're planning the future, you're firmly planted in the present and you know what you're doing is you're imagining some future. It isn't that we have to have some brain operation and eliminate, <laughs> no, we never think of the past or the future. That's not what the practice is. Um, I met Sansanim uh, Actually, I was on my way to India because I couldn't find anyone to learn meditation from in Cambridge, and I heard that they meditated in India (laughs) by the thousands. Actually, it's not so true. Uh, And a friend of mine said, you don't have to go to India. I had my passports and shots, everything. So there's a Korean Zen master, and uh, he's really teaching meditation. There are actual retreats in Providence, Rhode Island, so came and I met Sansanim and uh, I didn't give up the idea of India right away but within a few weeks I did so that there was no reason to go to India because what I wanted to learn was right here uh, as I speak since you, most of you don't know who he is there are some people here who have met Sansanim in fact we're, we were together at the time that I met him and we're still together Interesting. Um, when I first met him, I had not meditated. And so, I, having been a professor for a number of years, I had that kind of mind, university mind. The first thing I had to learn from him, as I tell you some of the things I've learned, it's not to glorify a personality because you don't know who he is. Most of you don't know who he is. But rather to see if any of the things that I learned apply to you, apply to you in your life and apply to you right here on this retreat. First off, I had no faith, or very little faith. I actually had a lot of faith, but I was embarrassed about it. 
I had a lot of questions. And so when I first started working, we would, have, we would sit, he would give us instructions, and there were very few people at the Providence Zen Center. In fact, here's a lesson for any of you who feel that you have something, some struggles right now, you have something difficult in your life. He was a very famous Zen master in Korea and Japan, but he arrived here, no one knew him. But he had decided he wanted to plant the seeds of Zen in the United States. He had very little English, just a few key words like okay, good, bad, and broken. Now, what do you do in a strange country where you have a limited vocabulary like that and you're about to teach this very profound doctrine of no mind and nirvana and all the rest of it? So he took a job uh, repairing laundry machines. Seriously. And when we met him, uh, he would, during the day, would work fixing these machines, laundry machines, and then we'd meet at his apartment. His underwear would be hanging from the ceiling, drying, and we would have little meditation sessions. And I asked a lot, question after question, and a lot of people got very irritated with me and just tried to shush me. He said, no, no, questions are very good. He says he has that style of mind, that kind of mind, and soon he'll exhaust himself. And then he can... <laughs> And then he can start to practice, so we have to let him exhaust himself. <laughs> so I was asking to compare this religion with Hinduism. You know, same questions that some of you are. Not so much anymore, right? Gets to be a big bore. Uh, finally, I think he said it was okay, but I think he didn't realize who he was up against. I mean, I was a professional. <laughs> and uh, I remember... One long, we were there for four days practicing with him, and it was a Sunday, a very nice day. Finally, I think he'd had enough of my questions. And finally, he said, uh, let's go for a walk. So just the two of us, we went along the ocean somewhere. I don't know, maybe Narragansett, I'm not sure. And for five hours, approximately, we walked in total silence. He didn't say one word. I didn't say one word. He didn't ask me any questions. He was gathering seaweed, and he would just point to that, and, and then he would gather it and put it in a... A basket. And then he'd point to that and he'd go, or is that was edible? That's not edible. And so for five hours we walked and we, then he taught me what to look for by pointing. And we came back with this big basket of seaweed, which then showed me how to hang it in the sun. And uh, at that point I knew I wasn't going to India. Uh, the silence was very interesting. And my questions became kind of trivial. In our practice, we use silence a lot. Outer silence. How is the silence for you, you know, on this retreat? For some people, silence <clears throat> feels heavy and oppressive, boring. You want just to scream or do something, jump up, talk to someone, hug someone, kiss someone, anything. Good. Watch it. Watch those urges. Just examine them. But anyway, that was a, a taste of silence. That uh, It was his silence. He was very quiet inside. As, uh, so I stayed and uh, started to learn about him and to learn to watch him take on America uh, were Dharma lessons every step along the way. Even when he made a mistake, there was wisdom in it because he corrected himself very quickly. I'd never seen that. I certainly know people who make mistakes. I'm one of them. I know people who make mistakes a lot of the time. But I had never met anyone who made mistakes and corrected them immediately. 
very quickly and then would drop the mistake. It just didn't bother him. You wouldn't spend weeks, you know, being guilty and mulling it over and talking to your therapist about it and all the rest of just, oh, this no good? Okay, throw it away and move on. <laughs> Simple if you can do it. The other was watching him with language. It was quite fascinating because uh, at the time, I lived in Cambridge and he would eventually restart at the Cambridge Zen Center, what is now called the Cambridge Zen Center. It was called that then too, the Cambridge Zen Center. Um, and he gathered, who do you think would be coming to, to study with Sansanim? Everyone was from MIT, Harvard, Brandeis, BU, and so forth. Mostly university types who had a lot of knowledge. Uh, t- about me, he would refer to me with a kind of feeling sorry for me. He merely understands everything. That's what he would say. He only understands everything. Meaning just knowledge, just words. Um, and one of the first things that we learned was that we were very complicated years of education. And when I went to Korea with him, it's obvious that he has, he's quite articulate and has very wonderful language skills. But in the United States, he only had good, bad, broken, no good, go straight, a few other words like that. And so no matter what we did, he would give us this very baby talk, essentially. You know, and we loved it. We just loved it. We couldn't have enough of it. It was such a relief from analyzing and thinking through and, you know, all of these huge words and qualifying the words. And, uh, you know, you, you understand. It was, just, it was really good therapy to just be given very simple, basic English. And got, got his message across. For example, he was very resourceful. One night at a Dharma talk, uh, by, by this time the Cambridge Zen Center existed. And it was very crowded. And he was talking about someone in ancient China or Korea, a woman who was a prostitute, uh, who became a great bodhisattva. And so men would go into this house, you know, to buy her body, but they'd come out enlightened. Yeah. Or they'd come out on the way. I don't know what went on in there, but it must have been pretty nice. Anyway, but he could he started to say prostitute, but he couldn't get the word out. So then he looked to me. I was not exactly his translator, but his translator. I would sit next to him, and when I saw him struggling, I, I could sense what he was trying to say, and I'd give him the English word. And he started to say prostitute, and I could see he couldn't say it. And finally, I, I would say it, and then he would listen, and then he'd try to say it, but he couldn't say it. So finally he said, Sell the body lady. <laughs> so he said, so this sell the body lady, she would be in this uh, house of prostitution. This house of... Pro- he couldn't say it. He said, this sell the body lady, she would be in this sell the body lady house. <laughs> and people would come in and they would want her body, but they'd come out enlightened or they'd be on the path. Uh, he never got thrown. Right? So that... It was great uh, determination. Uh, one time, I was with him in New York and he was being interviewed on a, ra- a radio program, Lex Hickson. Do any of you know his program? A lot of those are written up in a book. And Sansanim's, one of his main terms at that point was, don't know mind. D- still is, probably. Don't know mind is like beginner's mind or a mind that's open, truly open. And so during this interview, he kept referring to don't know mind, with a heavy Korean accent. And the interviewer kept hearing it as listening to it and 
uh, the interview was almost over. There were about five minutes left. And the interview seriously had heard it as donut mind. <laughs> and he said, uh, Sansanim, I understand everything you're saying, but I don't... I, he was not trying to be funny. He said, I don't know what you mean by don't, donut mind. Sansanim meant don't know mind. And, and Sansanim didn't defend himself. He didn't correct him. He said, oh, right, donut mind. And he just... <laughs> He went right into, and he just made up a whole teaching, same teaching, but only now using a donut. So, you think, what's in the middle of donut? You think, nothing is in the middle of a donut. You're wrong. Everything is in the middle of a donut. No attachment. No attachment to a lot of things. If you, if you don't have attachment, you're, you can play in the world. You can be much more free. If you have attachment, everything is a big deal. Very light in that sense. Um, also with beliefs. One night, he, we had so many beliefs. Everyone had all these concepts. We'd read all these Buddhist books. And one night someone said, I've read in the Theravada Buddhism, they say there are four stages to enlightenment. And uh, Mahayana Buddha is uh, ten. And, uh, and in uh, Tendai, they have fifteen. He said... I'm getting confused. How many stages of enlightenment are there? And Sansin looked at him like this and he said, How many do you want? He <laughs> said, You want ten? I give you ten. You want four? I give you four. It's up to you. So you could see what was happening. It was uh, teaching going on. Um, later on, I, he was grooming me to be a baby Dharma teacher and this was at the Cambridge Zen Center. And so I would give an introductory class to Zen once a week and people would, from Cambridge would come in. I think Hobb was in the class. Do you remember? And what Sansanim said to me was, um, you have to learn, if you're going to teach Dharma, you have to take out your sword and cut money away from Dharma. Money has nothing to do with Dharma. He says, you have to teach Dharma. We need money, but money is not our boss. I said, well, how does that apply to me? He said, when you teach, don't charge any money, what we call dana. He said, but watch your mind. Watch your mind and tell me what happens. Okay. So I'd start to teach and there'd be a person who would ask lots of questions, like myself. And at the end of the class, come up and ask more questions. And want to come back during the week and questions. Can I meet you in a coffee shop? And, and then at the, uh, at the end of the class, no money, nothing. Uh, and then my mind would, you know, cash register mind, you know, or, or uh, family business mind. And then someone else would be sitting there quietly, just taking it all in, and there would be a check for $600. No, they hadn't said a word the entire time. Anyway, when I would tell Sansanim about this, he would just roll on the floor laughing. You know, and, say, and I said, the whole point was, you, if you watch your mind, you'll see we're all trained. You know, that is, if we give some, something, we want something back but you have to get free of your students. You can't be attached to them that way. And so, if you see it, of course, your starting point is that your mind is going to want to be kind and want to teach to those people who pay you and who really appreciate what you're doing. Uh, and for those people who are, you know, just a pain, you know, asking endless questions, not practicing, and not paying you to boot. So you watch your mind, and after a while, you see how attached you are to this. 
And little by little, I'm not saying I'm free from it, but it was a huge help to try to uh, ease out from under that. Now, what I'm saying is not meant to be just entertaining. Because as I'm speaking, I'm hoping that you're reflecting on something in your life that perhaps this sheds light on. Okay. Um, another teaching lesson that he gave me was, I can't put this one into words, maybe you can help me, but it was definitely one of the most important teachings that I received from him. We used to have uh, session or young men retreats. We would have retreats that would go from Thursday night until Sunday. And we'd have one a month. And uh, I would usually, when he was there, I'd help him lead it. If not, I would uh, do some of it myself. And this was around Christmas time. And I saw the, uh, we looked at sign-ups for the Christmas retreat. Nobody. So everyone was going home to visit their parents, to go here and go there. So I went to Sansanim. You remember? And I said, well, Sansanim, it's only a few days before the retreat. Uh, no one signed up, so I guess we'll just cancel the retreat, right? He said, cancel the retreat? Why? He says, no, it doesn't matter how many people come. A thousand people come, nobody come. You lead the retreat. <laughs> I said, what? Are you serious? And he said, yes. It has nothing to do with how many people come. So at first I thought he was playing with me, because he would do that. He, he, he knew how to play. He was really serious. Okay. Uh, I didn't always listen to my teacher, but this time I did. And so the time for the retreat came, and if you can imagine, it's a somewhat different retreat form. Uh, there's chanting. You've been hearing some of the chanting. And bowing, 108 bows first, then chanting, and then sitting and walking, sitting and walking. Uh, their interviews uh, in the evening again, and this would go on. Okay. So I started to do it. I bowed 108 times to the Buddha, and then I did the chanting. There was no one there. It felt a little crazy, you know, but all right. Then I started to sit, and I started to walk, and then even the interviews happened, but the interviews were something like this. What are you doing? <laughs> yeah, you know, and I said, you are totally insane. And then the answer would be, you're right, I am. The first day seemed idiotic. I just felt, I mean, listen to your teacher, okay, but this is too much. But then something set in. By the second, third, and fourth day, it was quite a wonderful experience. Uh, it's hard to put into words. Some of it is weakening the attachment to approval, to getting approval. You know, that is, or the calculating mind. Again, it's more of the same. Our minds are very calculating. We're always doing this to get that. You know, I'll do A in order to get to B. I'll do B and that'll get to C. Ideally, we want to get from C to Z and skip all the, the rest of the steps. And what he was trying to teach me was, just do it. No calculating, no scheming. Just do it. Just get from A to A. That's what we're trying to do. We're trying to learn how to get from A to A. It's a hard one if you're constantly doing something in order to get something else for that something. Uh, and some of it I can't put into words, but it was just a wonderful retreat. Uh, and I didn't feel crazy or embarrassed. I thanked him for doing the bowing and the chanting and the sitting and the walking and everything. Eating, going to the bathroom, whatever you do on a retreat, all by myself. And uh, it was strengthening, too. Um, things pick up steam a bit. By the way, in one sitting... Actually, I was upstairs, I was relaxing. All this started to come out. 
It was like a computer printout. Some of which is familiar, but some of, it, some of it is not so familiar. I just remembered it for the first time in a long while. Okay, now we're on a plane on our way to, to Japan and then to Korea. And I'm sitting next to Sansanim on this plane. And I open up my traveling bag and I had a lot of very juicy Dharma books. A lot of good Buddhist books, the Buddha, Zen books, Vipassana books. And I'm fit, going through them to see which one should I read. I'm, and Sansin looks into my bag and he said, what's that? And I said, books. He says, you know, I see, but what are you going to do with them? We were, going to, we were going to Korea to do basically a year's practice at different monasteries. And I said, well, I, I wanted to bring these books. These are very good, Hui Neng and, uh, you know, some of the Buddhist sutras. And I wanted to read them in Korea. And he said, no, no good. For one year, no reading, nothing. I said, what, nothing? And he meant it. He meant no reading for one year. Now, you have to understand, that was aimed at me. It's not necessarily everyone shouldn't read for a year. But you know, like now, many people are recovering ex-alcoholics, recovering ex-drug addicts. I think I was a recovering ex-Jewish New York intellectual. Or I am a recovering. Let's hope I am. (laughs) After all this sitting, if I'm not, we're in bad shape. Um, And I agreed. I agreed to not read a book for a year. And I had withdrawal symptoms early on in Korea, like drug addicts do. I was just reading ketchup bottles. (laughs) I just wanted words in English, you know, registered U.S. patent office, ingredients, tomatoes, citric acid. Oh, words. It It was so wonderful to see words. But as you know, he was trying to cure me from attachment to words, attachment to ideas, and merely understanding everything. Understanding here meaning knowledge, not uh, experience. I remember once in Korea begging a Korean nun to translate. There was a statue of a famous Korean Zen master. I was so starved for words. Just tell me what he said. Underneath it was some famous saying. And she translated and read it to me. I felt like I was in paradise (laughs) just to have some words. But it passed. Passed and actually became quite pleasant to not read and to not have to read. And I, now, of course, I read, but it's never been the same. It's, now it's a very wonderful adjunct or a, like a nice dessert. Sometimes it's more than that. Uh, certainly when I read the Buddha, it's more than that. But it's uh, very different. It changed. Okay, when we got to Korea, we got very heavy lessons in attachment. And he uh, was wonderful in the way in which he taught us about attachment. The attachments there began with why are we in Korea in the first place? That is, I went because I had a very romantic model of the Zen student sitting in a monastery up high up in the mountains with chanting and all. And so we came to Korea. We were the first Americans to come to Korea to practice Zen. And so we were celebrities at the time. We were on TV Uh, because I was an ex-college professor I was giving talks at every Buddhist university the talks were about Buddhism in America and I was talking about Buddhism in America and all the people wanted to hear about was MIT and Harvard in America they just wanted to know how they could get their children into Harvard and MIT and I was trying to talk about Buddhism they were going like that and I figured it out finally that's for their grandparents Buddhism is something their grandparents did but for our children we want American learned high tech 
Uh, and sometimes we would have five meals a day because people would invite us and Sansini would say, we cannot say no, bodhisattva action. So that was not easy to be eating five meals a day. <laughs> Each one was festive and full and the person would give it to you with such enthusiasm. One time, uh, some, we, I went with some monks from a very, it turned out, poor monastery. And so I was vegetarian and I was the only lay person. And so the hostess said, well, what would you like to eat? And she offered, you know, mainly steak and fish and, and also vegetables. And I was going to say rice and vegetables. That's my normal way of eating. It's nothing special. Sansin kicked me under the table. <laughs> and he said, meat, meat. <laughs> I said, why meat? And he said, and he explained, these monks have, they have a very poor temple. They get very little protein. And why do you think they came with you today? <laughs> they want meat. They want to have some, get some meat. And this way, if it's for the, for the lay person, then it isn't for them, so then they can eat it. That's, that's the, way, the etiquette of it, the rule. So I ate some meat. Didn't like it, but I ate it. Uh, then the days started passing, and also he... Um, so you're getting off easy. No one's challenging you very much except you, you know, in this practice. Um, I was still dressed pretty much like someone who had escaped from the 1960s, you know, a refugee from, you know, hippie, fixed up a little bit. But we were there and he said, he looked at me and he said, you want people to understand what Buddhism is and so that you can explain it. Many Koreans, if they hear an American say that Buddhism is valuable, then they'll get faith back in their religion, which they've lost. So he had a custom-tailored suit made for me three-piece suit. Okay, I hadn't worn a suit like that in a long time, but I wore that. I was willing to do it for the Dharma. But then the days started passing and became interviews at newspapers and eating out at restaurants. And I started saying, Sansanim, when are we going to this great mountain monastery? And I started to become a real pest and so did the other people. And finally he said, look, when, when it's time to do, Zen is not just sitting. And I would translate that, I would say, Dharma is not just sitting. Our practice is really the same. He said, when it's time to sit, then you sit. When it's, then you do sitting in the mountain, Zen. But right now, for you, it's gentleman-style Zen. So you just put on your three-piece suit, and you do your job 100% this way. Oh, okay. That quieted me for a while. But then the major attachment and the major lesson came. It may seem small, but at the time it was huge. I mean, to me it seems small now. We couldn't eat the food. Uh, that is, we were getting uh, the runs and we had uh, dysentery and you no know, sooner we eat and we, we would just empty ourselves of it and we were getting sick and weak. And we were telling Sansanim this and first he was very gentle. And he was saying, I understand it's a new country, different food. Do you think I liked American food? When I was in America, I ate yogurt and I got sick. Do you think I like yogurt? But I had to eat yogurt. So now, you know, okay, we listen. And that would quiet us for about a few hours. And then, then the three of us, and I was a lot doing a lot of it, maybe most of it, all these very bad jokes. We became obsessed with American food. You know, sort of, oh, if I could only have a, even a McDonald's burger would be great now. Oh, well, I would give my life for a blueberry muffin and a cup of coffee. Oh, anything for a donut. You know, just endless stories about American food. And Sansanin got very quiet. His lips get tight when he's a little annoyed, you know, like that. He didn't say anything. 
and it built up over the days, and just the complaining and the jokes and what we would do for, for American food. One day, finally, he'd had enough, and he almost literally pushed me against the wall, and he screamed at the top of his voice. We were somewhere where there weren't people around. He said, where are you? And I said, Korea. And he said, exactly. And then he just walked away on me. Get it? When you're in Korea, you eat Korean food, for God's sakes. Okay, so we got it. And then it became much easier because what we were doing was comparing what we were getting with what we were used to, with our conditioning. And so that added torment. It made, it, it made something that was unpleasant because we were sick into torment, almost pure torment. Once he cut that away and we realized, okay, I'm in Korea. I'm going to be here for a year. Uh, Korean food's as good as any other food. I started eating. And soon we got healthy and then it was no problem. Uh, now I eat Korean food all the time. It's delicious. But at that point, it, was, it seemed like life or death. You know, if we don't get a hot dog soon or anything, <laughs> we won't make it. Other things, well, you know, the, there was one time when we were cleaning out um, a room in the Zen Center in Cambridge. And it was a new house that we had all moved into. And one room was quite neglected and rather dirty. And so I was starting to clean it up. I opened the door and I was about to clean it up. And something was very nearby. And I hesitated because it was so dirty. I just hesitated. And he just pushed me out of the way and said, hesitation mind, no good. And he just rolled up his robes and he just got down on the floor and threw everything out, started scrubbing. And I felt so embarrassed, so stupid. Uh, what he was trying to teach is what I hope you're getting in a more gentle way. That is, uh, we have these dualism. We, we create like and dislike a lot. The third Zen patriarch says something like, uh, the great way is not difficult if you let go of your attachment to preferences. It's not that we don't have preferences, but we get attached to our preferences. And so, what's happening here? Any, anything like that here? That is, do you uh, feel that when you're, I don't know what your job is, maybe it's sweeping the deck, or maybe it's, I don't know, helping around the monastery, whatever your particular job is, do you feel that that is inferior to this, to sitting in the hall? Do you feel that walking is okay, but not quite as good as sitting? Do you feel that eating is a break? It's not really practice. So what the practice is trying to get at is that wherever you are is a perfect place to practice. Couldn't be better. In fact, it's the only place to practice because it's where you are right then. It's as simple as that. So it's not really so much as a tech of a technique but it's a way of living, a way of living wholeheartedly, of really giving life to life. And so we certainly got that from him. We learned countless ways to just, whatever it is you're doing, to really give yourself over to it. And if you make a mistake, it's all right. If you fail, it's all right. We started one uh, martial arts center with Sansanim and a Korean martial arts a student of his. And... We rented the building. We were almost ready. We even started some of the construction. And then he decided, this is wrong. This is the wrong place. And then we just gave it all back. We, it was quite inconvenient. And then some time went by and then he found the right place. Someone offered him some land on a part of a mountain. 
and we were with him and he looked at it for quite a while and, he's, and it was free you know, it was a beautiful mountain we thought of course good place to build a monastery he said no it's wrong it's not a good place for a monastery and we all you know we were just impatient we didn't know what to do with that he started a center in New York City and we drove up to New York City and the building was already picked out it was near Klein's department store if any of you know where that is near 14th Street and we got out of the car and we looked around and our faces dropped. You know, how are we going to do Zen here? And he saw it and he said, if you can do Zen in New York City, you can do it anywhere. <laughs> so we started a center in New York City. Uh, and it goes on. For example, when we were sick, in Korea, I, I was practicing a koan. The koan was, what am I? The question, what am I? At a certain point, it's not so much the words, but the energy of, an, of inquiry, of investigation. What am I? And so, at the beginning, we were practicing, and also we were sick. We had very little energy. And so I talked to him about that. I said, you know, how can I practice? I have no energy. And he's always talking about making the great effort and really asking that question, big question, most important question in the world. And I said, I have barely any energy to get through the day. How can I practice what am I? So he said, well, when you have a lot of energy, then it's what am I? But when you're very sick, it's what am I? <laughs> but you still practice. You always practice. Only go straight 10,000 years, next 10,000 years. You think eight days that we have left is a long... There's a few people who thought of leaving. It's only eight days. I have to wait 10,000 years. So you're getting off easy. Uh, finally, another couple of important lessons that I learned from him. One very big one. Uh, was back in Cambridge. One night... Do you remember the TV show Kung Fu? Do any of you remember that show? Okay. For those of you who don't, it was a, about a, a Chinese kung fu martial arts person who's in the West. You know, so it's kind of cowboys and a martial arts. You know, and, I, and at that time, we would all watch it religiously. It was like that was the only dharma going on. We would just come to the TV set and watch kung fu. Because he would have words of wisdom from his old Chinese master, which would help him get out of certain difficult situations. We would be all teary-eyed watching this all this stuff. Anyway, one night... Uh, someone knocks on the door, pounds on the door, and we had just finished meditating at Cambridge Zen Center, and the person opens the door, they were drunk, their breath was unbearable, unshaven, had not washed for days, clearly had been crying, uh, everything, just a total disaster. And the person said, is there a kung fu master here? I went to Chinatown, and they said, there's a kung fu guy, just like the person on TV, who lives at this center. You know, he said, no, there's a Korean Zen master. And he said, well, it's the same, isn't it? Kung Fu, Korean Zen. So we were, we felt, well, this is, he's in the wrong place. And we were trying to be kind, but really we weren't too happy to usher him into our nice, clean Zen center, you know, with a nice, clean everything, with the nice cushions piled up. And here was this guy saying, can I come in and meet the Kung Fu? And then Sansanim was in the back. And we were being kind, but also not exactly inviting him in. Sansanim came down and he looked around and said, he came up and he looked at him over and said, oh, good, bring him in. You know, and we, we didn't like that. None of us did. We just felt tense and that he was spoiling our very nice Zen center. 
So Sansanim talks to him, and you could, he could hardly understand, but he did understand one thing. His wife left him. He got that, and the man was very unhappy. And he could figure out by talking to him, he could see a koan out of the question, all kinds of things out of the question. Finally, he gave him a very simple mantra. I think it was about three words, and he couldn't remember it, so he had to write the three words down. And then he invited him to come to our sittings every morning and every evening, he did indefinitely. So we get up in the morning and we have our nice clean Zen center and this guy would come in in the morning, you know, not quite as drunk, but he'd be sitting there with his piece of paper sitting on the cushion, whatever those three words were, and just saying it like that while we were sitting, you know, the professional Zen students, <laughs> totally embarrassed. It was such a dramatic flaw, you know, just... Uh, but Sansanim would meet with him and, you know, little by little, the day came when he, this man became cleaner and shaved and happier and laughed and then he did his mantra and then he said okay I don't care that my wife left you know it's not so bad uh, and we were just amazed and then he went to another it didn't end that way then he entered then he came in one day really depressed and he said what's the matter and he said well I don't care that my wife left but now I'm sad that I don't care that my wife left <laughs> so I don't I don't know how it ended to tell you the truth but what we learned from Sansanim was you never give up on anyone that doesn't mean that everyone has to practice the same practice that you do, but you don't give up on anyone in the sense that you respect everyone. You give everyone uh, the respect and dignity that they deserve just because they're a human being. That's all. It's enough. So we got knocked off our high horse because we were pretty snotty at that point. Okay, one final one. There really are many more, believe it or not. I'm just giving you the short version. This one may help some of you who have, who are around when all this happens, so you've you've heard it and seen it. Oh, there's Larry telling his Sansanim stories again. This is to get, to help me out. Uh, when Sansanim first came to to Boston. There was no Zen center, and we would take him to a Tibetan Buddhist meditation center every Friday night. And they invited him to come, and he came for about 10 or 15 weeks. Every Friday night, gave a Dharma talk. And then he'd go back to Providence. And so about the sixth or seventh Friday night, he gave his Dharma talk, and someone got up and was annoyed and said, I've come here every Friday night and you just say the same things over and over and over again. You know, and we were embarrassed. How could he be so rude to our Zen master? He's just been saying the same things every Friday night. It's the same thing. So Sansim looked at him and said, Have you done it yet? <laughs> Can we have a few moments' silence? Thank you. I'm cured. I'm out of the past. I can join you on the retreat now.